Hi, folks. Uh, so good to be with you here on our last lone live stream uh, at Ironworks Church. And um, I want to prepare us today by remembering that back in the 1970s, there was a popular game show that was aired on, on TV. It was called Let's Make a Deal with your host, Monty Hall. And, you know, on this game show, I'm not really sure what it was about exactly. They had contestants come on and they would uh, get cash and then they would try to make a deal and they would then have to choose between what's behind door number one, door number two, door number three, and they make a choice and they would maybe lose all the cash they had and what's behind door number one was a donkey or it might be an all-paid uh, trip to the Bahamas or uh, it was some kitchen set. So there, were always, there was always a deal to be made, I guess. It was, it was sort of like cultivating and playing on American materialism. <laughs> Uh, certainly, and also on the American penchant for getting the best deal that you can get. There was always a deal to be made. And I watched this as a very little kid. I watched this because at the end of the show, they always tried to end the show with Monty Hall going out into the studio audience and he would say, I want to make a deal. Who has a paperclip? And whoever had a paperclip, he would pay them $10 for the paperclip. And he said, well, wait, who has a rubber band? And he would say, I'll give you $50 for every rubber band you made. And people would, you know, scramble for rubber bands. There was cash going everywhere. And he said, you know, what about a toothpick? You know, I'll give you $100 for a toothpick. So people would come to the studio audience and they'd be, you know, just uh, kind of burdened down with all these pockets and things and bags and things that they had just in case Monty Hall might ask for that thing, they could make a deal. Imagine if, you had a, imagine if you had a box of toothpicks when he wanted toothpicks, what a deal you would clean up. So the point of this, I guess, was that there was always a deal to be made. And a, a, an apt point, uh, as we turn this morning to prepare to cross the threshold, I want to make sure that we're prepared in a spiritual way with the most important lesson. Uh, as we cross the threshold, are we ready for what we've undergone to come out of what we've undergone? Here's an important point. It's, a, it's a, an important point to remember as we look at this very strange story that we're going to visit, revisit really, actually here at Ironworks. This story of Jephthah the great judge of Judges chapter 10 and 11. And it's a tragic story, actually, a barbaric story, uh, but it has a message for us that is key for us, I think, as we cross this threshold. So if you would join me, I am going to read from Judges chapter 10. I'm going to be reading in the RSV version, but you can follow along. Uh, in your Bible, if you wish. I'm going to begin. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just uh, portions of it. I'm going to start in chapter 10, verse 6, read a verse there, and then go to the end of the chapter, and then mostly in chapter 11. So again, I'm reading from Judges chapter 10, beginning in verse 6. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Okay, and if we could go down then to, to the end of the chapter, verse 17. I'll pick up there. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. 
And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man that will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Then on to Judges chapter 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his sons, his wife's sons grew up, they thrust Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not inherit in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected round Jephthah and went raiding with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. When the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come, be, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, oh, that's why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight with the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight with the Ammonites and the Lord gives me over to them, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us. We will surely do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah actually tries to negotiate with the Ammonites and uh, we will go down to verse 29 <coughs> of chapter 11. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt give the Ammonites into my hand, then whoever comes forth from the doors of my house to meet me when I return victorious from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer him up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he smote them from Eroer to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Ebel Karamim, with a great, very great slaughter. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, if you have opened your mouth to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone forth from your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. And she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. 
Let me alone two months that I may go and wander in the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my companions. And he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had made. She had never known a man, and it had become a custom, it became a custom in Israel, that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. And this is a word of the Lord. A tragic story when God was looking for someone to lead his people. He was looking for someone to be ahead of his people. He needed someone, and this is the story of the book of Judges, God looking for someone who can be faithful to him, someone who could keep covenant with him, because this is what the people needed. They needed a, a vision setter. They needed a leader. One who could be faithful to the Lord. And so here we have another story of a man who could do that because there was such promise in this man. The reason why the story is so tragic, one of the reasons is that he had such promise. This was an extraordinary leader. This was someone who, even though the Gileadites, you know, had all of Gilead in front of them, when they were in trouble, they, they went out from Gilead and went to find Jephthah in order to bring him back to face the Ammonites. So as if there wasn't a man in all of Gilead who could help them, they had to go and get Jephthah. It shows you there was, there was extraordinary talent that had been recognized in this man. He had great gifts. He also was a great negotiator. You know, you, we, we skip the part where he tries to negotiate with, with the Ammonites. But you can see when they, even when the elders of Gilead come to get him, come to get Jephthah, he negotiates with them because they're going to just make him, when they start out, say, come be our, our commander. And if, if you look at it closely, the words that's being used, um, he's, Jeff is like, no, you know, that's not the way it's going to go down. Because if you, if you bring me back and I am victorious, I'm going to be your head. I'm going to be actually something even more than a judge. Some, uh, I, I'm going to be your political leader after all this is over. So we're looking at someone who really understood statecraft here. He was a vision setter. It just had so many things going for him. And he was an underdog. You know, we, we learn, the narrator shows us his early life in the first three verses of chapter 11, that uh, he, is, he is somebody who's had opportunities cut off to him in life. And he was, he, because of his background, he was a bastard. He is son of a harlot. So he was not, he was not going to have the opportunities in life. Uh, that others had. And God loves this kind of story, loves this kind of pauper to prince story. He was an underdog. So he had all these things going for him, such promise. This could have been the one to lead God's people onward, even beyond his generation to the next generations. But he couldn't be the head. He couldn't become the leader of God's people. Why? And it comes down, of course, to this vow that he makes. <laughs> Verse 31 I will sacrifice if you give me victory, God, the first one who comes out of my house to meet me. Now, this is a very uncomfortable thing to read, is it not? 
I know you're probably bothered by it. A lot of the commentators are bothered by it as well. And so uh, you, you, read, you read different people who've commented on, on this passage. You find there's a lot of machinations. Some of them go through to try to show, well, maybe, maybe Jephthah didn't really understand what he was vowing. Or maybe he really meant uh, like some kind of animal or something. And this, this kind of argument... These machinations are reflected in some modern translations you might have in your Bible where verse 31 says, whatever comes out of his house to meet me. Whatever comes out of my house to meet me, you know. Uh, and technically, uh, translators can translate it that way because of how the masculine is used. Technically, you could say whatever rather than whoever. But that's not a good translation. For instance, it's really not what was going on. He said whoever. How do we know? Well, if you just look at what, uh, what, what he says in the context of that, whoever or whatever comes out of my house to meet me. That's his vow. What did, what did Jephthah expect to come out of his house to meet him? You know, like a bull? You think a bull is going to wander out of his house or a goat to meet him? Not an animal, no. It, it's a person. And <clears throat> why would he make such a great vow if he was just thinking about an animal? You know, I mean, you win this great war, an entire war against the Ammonites. You come back and you, that's it? You're going to sacrifice one animal? I mean, what's the big deal about that? If he were just saying that, it wouldn't be even worth making a vow about. And the proof really is what happens in verse 39. When, when this all comes out and it is his daughter, which I don't think he was expecting at all. His daughter is the one who comes out to meet him. What does he say? He doesn't say, well, that's not what I meant, you know. He goes through with it and he actually sacrifices his very own daughter. So Jephthah knew what he was swearing when he made this tragic vow. So then the question for us today, friends, the question of the day is, what would possess a man to make this kind of vow? What would possess him to put all such, uh, his whole family, his whole heritage in jeopardy Well, for us to understand that, the narrator gives us two key facts about, about what's going on in Jephthah, where his head is at to help us understand how he could get to this place and make this ridiculous vow. The first thing is his, his early childhood, his background. The second is his religion. So as, we saw, as we've seen, he had such promise. This was a man who was desperate. Because he had such promise. Because he had such gifts. Imagine a life where you have such amazing gifts as Jephthah had. Such ability. And you are, you are completely cut off. You're thwarted from realizing that potential. And you know you have real, the real qualities of greatness. I mean, if, if, if Jephthah was just a ne'er-do-well, you know, and he wasn't going to amount to anything anyway, then this would not be so, he would not be so desperate. But he's somebody who really could be the leader of Israel. He's somebody with great potential, great talents, just some, something of a superman here. And yet, imagine a life where because of your circumstances, because of your background, that is completely cut off to you. Imagine the desperation that he felt. Because <clears throat> you could almost hear, you could almost hear the, 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 what's, what Jephthah is articulating to his brothers in its passage. And it's this. I could have been a contender, Charlie. 
I could have been somebody. I could have been a contender, right? But you cut me off, right? That's, what, that's, that's Jephthah's story, right? He could have been a contender. And then, all of a sudden, the tables turn, and he has a shot. He has a shot at greatness, but only one shot. This was it. This was it for Jephthah and his entire life and his entire family. He knew that if, if, if he messed up here, if he was not successful in defeating the Amorites, it would be completely over for his family, for his life, for generations. But if he was successful, if he took this one shot and he was successful and he beat the Ammonites, it would change everything for the rest of, of, of his, his family's life and his life. It would change everything. He would finally be realized as the person that he was. He would finally be recognized for the potential that he had. And he would be in the place where he should be. Life would be as it was meant to be. So he had to win. Do you understand the, dis- the desperation here? He had to be successful. Ever, are you ever in that position where, uh, you know, other things fall away and you just have got to succeed at this task that's in front of you? That's where he was at. So what did he do? Well, what do the desperate always do when they are at their most desperate? They turn to religion, right? <laughs> that's what the desperate always do when they get desperate, is that that's when you turn to God. That's when you turn to religion. And that's just what Jephthah proceeds to do. And so he, he feels like he, he needs to make a deal with God. Um, he, he needs to make a bargain. So you see, he's, trying to, he, he's really treating God like the elders of Gilead here. He's got to negotiate here. He feels a need to do that. Why does he feel the need to make a negotiation with God? Yeah, he turns to religion, but what religion is he turning to? And to understand that, we have to understand um, what's going on in chapter 10, verse 6, which is where, why I started there. With us, I'll, I'll try to do this quickly, but this is probably key for understanding where Jared, Jephthah's head is at. The Israelites were, were, being, were being surrounded and, and infiltrated by the culture in which they lived. This is always the case with the people of God. There's never a case where the people of God are not influenced by the culture in which they live. And that was the case then as it is now. Both good and bad comes in. And what was infiltrating the culture of the Israelites. Well, these gods, these different people that are mentioned in chapter 10, verse 6, and especially the gods of the Philistines. Now, when you read the word Philistines in the Bible, I brought this up before. When you see Philistines in the Bible, what you should think in your head is Greeks. Why? Because the Philistines were these mysterious sea people who came from some other land across the Mediterranean they bounced off of Egypt. They first came to Egypt. Then they, they left Egypt, ended up on the lower shores of Canaan, what we would call today the Gaza. And, and they actually came to those shores and were flourishing around this time, the second millennium uh, uh, BC. Some people pinpointed at 1175 BC, but it, it, maybe a little before that. Around that time, these mysterious sea people uh, arrived. And they were the Philistines. Well, where did they come from? People have done research and, and you can actually see, it's, make a very good case from the pottery that's there in, in uh, the Philistine culture and in Crete. Uh, 
And from literary references that these Philistines were really Greeks. They were coming over really from Crete at this time. And that's important for us because we know the religion of the Greeks. We know from the rich mythology literature that we have of the Greeks. And friends, what we see in their religion is just this story again and again. We, you know, you might remember the story of Agamemnon and how he sacrifices his daughter, Iphigenia. It's a good pronunciation, Greek pronunciation, Iphigenia, for fair winds in order to get to Troy. There was Menander, who with a similar story, sacrificed his son, Archelaus. Uh, and then, you know, on the way home from Troy, again, Idonimaeus is on his way home. He gets in a storm. And the, the, it's a terrible storm. The, the ship is breaking up. Everybody's going to die. And Idonimaeus um, knows that everyone's going to die. So he, at, the, at the bow of the ship, you know, he's holding on. And he shouts out a, he shouts out a promise, a vow to Poseidon. And what does he say? He says, just get me home safe. He was actually from Crete. And he says, get me home safe to Crete. Get me to my homeland safely. And I will sacrifice the first living thing that I see. Well, the storm is averted. Actually, he does make it home safely to Crete. And he is going to sacrifice the first living thing which he sees. Which thing turns out to be none other than his own son. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? You understand what Jephthah is doing here in this passage in the Bible. Jephthah's just being a good Greek. He's just being actually a good Philistine. He's absorbed the religion of the Philistine. And in that Philistine religion, you must make a deal with God for success. You must try to make a deal with God. And that's what Jephthah is doing. He's negotiating God into owing him something. And that is why, friends, he was, he was making this vow, willing to jeopardize his family, his heritage, his posterity, which is what's emphasized in the passage. He, you know, the, the, the narrator is very definite. He had no other children. So even, uh, you know, after this, there could be no possibility for his family. Uh, and he, he jeopardized all of that for success uh, in, in this one episode in his life. And that is because Jephthah could not believe that God's favor would come without deal-making. Now, Yahweh had a very different religion that he was teaching to the Israelites. A very different way, a way of the covenant of grace. And Yahweh was busy trying to inculcate into his people the fact that, and, and make them realize that there was nothing they could do to earn their success, earn their deliverance. No matter how many strong deeds they could perform, no matter how much sacrifice that they made, that they could take Troy, that they could kill Kerberos, that they could get the Gorgon's head, it didn't matter. That wasn't what would grant God's favor to them 
in the, in the ways in which they needed. That isn't what would bring them success in their life. A very different religion. And it had to be deep in the heart, not only of the Israelites, but whoever would, read, would lead the Israelites. They would have to know this, that God's grace delivers his people. Now, he can use your gifts. If, if you have great gifts, he will use them. He will accept them. He will even accept sacrifice, but not that's, not that's predicated on success. Rather, your success is predicated on his gift to you. And so in, in, the, in the religion of Yahweh, there are no, there, there these no, no you know, windswept scenes where the storm is there and you're on the bow of the ship or you're on the, you're on the, the, the uh, top of the mountain or on a great rock by the sea and you know, the wind is blowing your hair around and you make this vow, I swear by the depths of my very gizzards, God, if you give me this one thing, I will do whatever you want. Whatever you want, I'll do. If you give me this, the desire of my heart, you know. There's none of that scene in the, in the biblical religion. That's the kind of deal that you make with Poseidon. That's the kind of deal you make with Hera. That's the kind of deal you make with the devil. But Yahweh will not have it. And he is adamant about people coming to understand this, about his people. This will not be the way it goes with him. So God thinks that these shenanigans that some of these judges do and what Jephthah was doing here, they're as ridiculous as trying to buy a hundred dollars with a paper clip. A very different thing. So the question for us this morning, friends, is what religion have we adopted in our hearts? Because this religion has never really died out. And I got to ask us if we have really fallen into the trap at times of trying to make a deal with God. Trying to follow in the way of Jephthah. You can see it, you know, if there, if, if there are negotiations that are being made. Maybe some of us have tried to make negotiations with God. We've tried to make a deal. We say, God, if you just do this one thing, then I'll be good. You know, if you just do me, give me this one thing, I will go to church every Sunday. You know, or if you just give me success in this one place, from then on, I will be good to my wife. You know, <laughs> or give me this one thing, you know, and I will stop cursing my pastor. I will never curse my pastor out again. We say we make those deals. You say, well, I wouldn't do that. But there are other ways, maybe more subtle, where we come after and follow after this deal-making religion of the Philistines. You know, I was speaking with a uh, woman not too long ago, and her husband had just died. And we got into this conversation and she was just telling me all of the wonderful things that her husband had done. How he, how much charity he had given to, how he had been, you know, active in this way and in that way. And about halfway through the conversation, I realized what was happening is that, you know, as a pastor, as a minister, sometimes I'm God's representative to people. So they look at me and sort of like, this is God's representative. And I realized that what she was doing was trying to convince me that her husband belonged in heaven. 
that he, because of what he had done in his life, he was actually, you know, worthy of the good place. And it was important for her, for me, to, for me to understand this about her husband. What is that? Well, it's trying to bring our paper clips. It's trying to bring our rubber bands. It's, it's trying to bring our toothpicks before God and saying, there, you know, I've done this, so you should give me eternal life. It's the same religion. And God won't have it. If there's one thing that he will be firm about, it is this with us. And he will push us up against the wall about it. He'll yell at us about it. He'll even, you know, he'll even give us pain about it until we understand this. And you say, I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't go in for that. I understand I'm a good Christian. I understand we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. I know this, but ask your heart, friends. If you feel like God owes you something, have you ever said in your heart, you know, God, I'm such a good girl. How come I'm not married yet? God, you know, I've served in the, in the church for so long, so many times, so faithfully. How come I don't have that new job that I really need, that I really want? Or, you know, God, I've been, I'm the one who's, you know, how could you deprive me? I'm me, after all. <laughs> I've been, I've been the one who's been trying to please you. Not like these other guys, you know, that I know. I'm the one who's trying to please you. How come I don't have the recognition in my life that I should? What's going on there, friends? Is you've slipped into the religion of the Philistines. And when you do that, and the reason why God is so adamant about keeping you from doing that, you end up becoming Subhuman. When you do that, you start making choices that are very Jephthah-like. You know, there's a, a well, uh, there's a successful actor that I know, and I won't use his name, but I know the life, and I can just tell you that he could not help but sacrifice the woman in his life for the success he felt he so needed. That story gets played out and this was true. He couldn't help but do that. What is that? Again, it's the story. Once again, all over again. Because if we do not go in the way of grace, in the way that God has made for us, that Yahweh has made for us, the true God, then our victories will be hollow. All of the, you know, the Ammonites were defeated that day, but it was a gray, gray day in Gilead. For the people end up mourning, you know, Jephthah himself, all of the joy of that victory was sucked out of it by tragic overtones. And if you go on to read, six years later, Jephthah himself is dead. So God will not have us and he will do all that, all that he can, sometimes extreme measures, in order to keep us from going after these other gods, this other religion, where we feel like, you know, we have to make a deal with God. You know, God is the, is the anti-Monty Hall. You know, actually, I should say, Monty Hall himself, the, guy, the man, Monty Hall, was a great guy. He actually died a few years ago, and he, he, had done, he did a lot for charity. He did a lot of great things. So I don't, I don't mean to put Monty Hall down, but as far as the character in that show, you know, 
where it's always another deal. God is that, God is anti that. And this is what the people needed in Israel. This is another case of where we see in the book of Judges that charismatic leadership just can't cut it. That God needs someone who will be faithful to the covenant, who will keep the covenant. He needed a leader who would believe that God would give what he needed, what the people needed out of his grace to them and his forgiveness. He needed a leader who would believe that. And you know, this is a good lesson for Ironworks leadership. If you're a leader here in Ironworks and you're kind of fretting and worried and you're responsible in some part for the opening up that's going to be happening next week, you know what God needs most from you as a leader? He needs you to be able to trust and have confidence that he will give the people that he loves what they need. He needs you to have that kind, he needs that kind of leadership Someone who's not there to make a deal with God and go through all these machinations so that things will work out for this church. He doesn't need that. What he needs is leaders who will be confident that he will give to his people what they need. So a tragic story. And in the final chapter of the story, you know, there's some debate about what Jephthah should have done when his daughter comes out to meet him and the vow is realized. Right? When that happens, when it finally comes out, what he's, you know, what he's vowed and what's in front of him, what should he have done? And there's some debate about that uh, among scholars. Like, what should he have done? Because, and you can feel it in the story, there's this tension that if you make a vow to God, you need to fulfill what you say. If you make a vow to God, you need to do what, you're, what you said in your words. And that's there in Deuteronomy 23. It's a very clear law. It's like when you make a vow to God, that's it. You need to fulfill it. You need to do it. But at the same time that we have Deuteronomy 23, we also have Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 forbids child sacrifice. And one of the things that makes this situation of Jephthah so ironic, the irony is very thick, because he, he's going to war against the Ammonites. The Ammonites worshipped Chemosh, and Chemosh was a bloodthirsty God. Hmm. He actually required child sacrifice. So it's kind of ironic that, you know, they're going to battle against the Ammonites so that the land can have peace from such gods. So that instead of, of these things going on, this child sacrifice, there wouldn't be child sacrifice going on. And then Jephthah ends up doing the same thing. So thick irony here. Almost like, like an impossible situation. Deuteronomy 23, Leviticus 18. What should he have done? Well, the answer, friends, I know exactly what he should have done. What he should have done is broken the vow and taken the consequences of breaking the vow on himself. That's what a true head would do. The true head would have said, I break the vow and I take the consequences, whatever they're going to be, on myself. You know how I know that's what he should have done? Because when the true head, the true leader of God's people came, that's exactly what he did do. And his name was Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, he came as our head. He was finally the guy that God, that God finally found to be able to lead his people who would be entirely faithful and always and keep covenant with him. And when he came, Jesus Christ took the consequences of all faithful, faithlessness on himself 
even that were not his doing. So he became the one sacrificed for all the foolish bargainings that we have done, all the attempts to manipulate God, all the deals for success, and all the people that we've sacrificed along the way. And this is why God makes deals no longer. He doesn't make any more deals because he made one deal and that was with Christ. And because of his sacrifice, God could be favorably disposed towards us. He, we could have God's favor. We could have the things that we need in this life because of what Christ has done. Like Jephthah, Christ was rejected by men. But unlike Jephthah, he bore the consequences that were not due him. So let's come to him now. We're going to sing. And I want you all to, to give up your Philistine religion. Let's do that. It's not worth it. You know, it makes us subhuman. when We don't follow in God's way. He'll use your gifts. He will. But they don't have to be your validation. He will. So by the grace of the true head, let's unclench our fists now for our own justification. You know, the feast that Christ invites us to is as Mike Bubeck down who used to teach at New Covenant Church in Lewis, Delaware used to say, the feast that Christ invites us to, it's not a potluck dinner. They're not things that we bring to it. We don't feel like that's fair. We resist that. But Christ has done what he's done so that it's not a potluck dinner. He, he brings us to a feast. We're not bringing anything to it. We just need to receive. So come to him now, not to make a deal, just to receive. <laughs>